Please take your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going through a, a study here, a series uh, through Philippians, and we're now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Follow as I read. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let us pray. Dear Father, as we think and, and have read the Apostle Paul's words that you inspired him to write to the church in Philippi, we are encouraged and challenged. We ask that you would speak to our hearts and deal with us in such a way as you dealt with the church in Philippi, as you wrote to them through the hand of the Apostle Paul in exhorting them on how they should strive together for the faith of the gospel. We ask you to do your will and have your way 
In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2. This evening's sermon is entitled, How to Strive Together for the Faith of the Gospel. How to Strive Together for the Faith of the Gospel. Most of you know my background, again, in, in, in health and fitness. And as the owner of a health and fitness center, I wanted to maintain, as I started it, I wanted to start it and maintain a pleasant, conservative atmosphere in my facility, especially as a believer. It was in the incorporated village here in Belport, and I knew that there were about seven other facilities that people had a choice to go to. And I knew what I wanted to do was to start and maintain a pleasant, conservative atmosphere for the clients who would come into my facility, as opposed to the other facilities and what they have to offer. Now, as the executive director, not just the owner, but as the executive director, it was my responsibility to make sure that all of my instructors knew how to strive together in order to maintain a pleasant, conservative atmosphere. There were three major factors as we strove together to maintain this pleasant, conservative atmosphere. And these three factors determined our level of success. They were unity, humility, and purity. There had to be unity amongst me and my instructors on the goal, what we're trying to do, and how to attain it. There had to be humility expressed in myself and my instructors in order to show our concern for others, for these clients that would come in. And then there had to be purity in myself and the other instructors in the sense that we would be practicing what we're teaching the clients on how to uh, build up their health and fitness. And I thought it was very interesting to see how the owner of the church, God himself, wants to maintain a pleasant atmosphere for the faith of the gospel. And then we see the Apostle Paul as an apostle, it was his responsibility to make sure that every New Testament church knew how to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And I want to notice real quickly, before we get into chapter 2, in chapter 3 and 4, I want us to notice together that Paul knew, he was aware that the church in Philippi was not creating a pleasant atmosphere for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see that the church of Philippi, amongst them, the way they conducted themselves or the, the way they strove together, part of it involved a bunch of Judaizers. And chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, explains 
who they are and, and, and what, they, what they were. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Then in verse 2 he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This church, in this church, as they strove together, there was a bunch of Judaizers, and, and the way in which they strove was a wrong way. Uh, they put confidence in the flesh and not in Christ. They said, hey, we're the true circumcision because of the way we've been born, because of our nationality, because we're simply a Jew. We are God's chosen people, and we are above the Gentiles. And they added their own interpretation of the law, like many of the Pharisees, right? So we see that the Judaizers caused a disturbance amongst the church in Philippi. There was problems in this church, and Paul addressed this problem. Also, in chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, there were perfectionists. Verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And brethren, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, there was a bunch of perfectionists running around in this church saying, hey, uh, you got to be perfect, otherwise you, you cannot be of God. So there was Judaizers, there was a problem in the church, there was perfectionists, and then in the same chapter, verse, uh, verses 18 and 19, there was antinomianism and libertines. Verses 18 and 19 say this, uh, or Paul starts in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. They say, hey, all you can do is believe in God and come to the synagogue or the church and everything's okay. By the way, what are we having for supper? You know, whose God is their bellies and they focused on things of the earth. They didn't care about spiritual things. There was problems in this church. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 2, that there were also rivalries in the church of Philippi. Chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul says, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. There was rivalries there. They weren't in harmony there. So you see how there's problems in the church of Philippi, and what really need to be addressed is what was addressed by the Apostle Paul. I mean, yes, this was a thank you letter for what they have given, but there's more important things than finances. And Paul addressed the importance of striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is the issue he was addressing here. Now, I want us to realize very shortly, as we talked about already, that uh, uh, there is ways not to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, that means that we don't put any confidence in the flesh like the Judaizers did. That means that uh, we put our confidence totally in the Lord Jesus and in the grace of God. Another way not to strive together for the faith of the gospel is not to think that we're perfect not to have the mind that we've obtained it already. We have a long way to go. We've just began. Another way not to strive together for the faith of the gospel is we can't uh, be antinomian in our views. We can't say, hey, we believe in God, so now we can sin that grace may abound. That is not how to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And then another way that, that is not how to strive together for the faith of the gospel is that there be rivalries in the church. Uh, we need to be in harmony in the Lord. Uh, we need to, uh, as Paul deal, as deals with in chapter 2, uh, we need to be in unity and humility and purity. And that's what he deals with in, ver in verses chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. The first thing, the first issue he deals with is unity. In other words, he says, guys, look, you need to strive together for the faith of the gospel, and this is how you must strive together for the faith of the gospel. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, he says that you really need to do this in unity. Verse 1 and 2 says this, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's talking about unity here. Saying, guys, you really need to strive together for the faith of the gospel, and it must start with unity. And what he says in verse 1 is, gives, he actually gives the reasons for, for unity. He says in, in verse 1, if there is, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, now, let's realize that he's not questioning whether or not there's encouragement in Christ, okay? Uh, in fact, I, I think a, a, a better rendition of this, uh, of the original language, uh, would read, since, since there is encouragement in Christ, and there is. So, uh, really, there should be unity since there is encouragement in Christ. Paul knew firsthand experience that there is encouragement in Christ. So, since there is encouragement in Christ, there should be unity. Uh, Christ has the gift of encouragement without measure. John 3, 34 says this. We talk about the gifts, and uh, we as men receive gifts from, the, from God. Uh, but when Christ received gifts, John 3, 34 says that Jesus received the gift of encouragement without measure. Verse 34 of John 3 says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. 
See, there is encouragement in Christ. Therefore, there should be unity. There is encouragement in Christ because Christ has the, the gift from the Spirit of encouragement without measure. You see, we as men, uh, we say, uh, we, some of us as Christians have gifts of encouragement. There are gifts of encouragement that the Spirit gives to men and women in the church, right? But you see, we receive that gift in measure. There's a limit to our measure of encouragement. But you see, Christ, he uh, received the, the gift of encouragement without measure. There is encouragement in Christ. Uh, doesn't that encourage you that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us? He'll be with us always, even to the ends of the earth. Doesn't it encourage you to know that you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you? Talk about encouragement. Uh, when, when, when the Bible says, uh, do not be afraid, for I am with you, Jesus has the gift of encouragement without measure. So there is encouragement in Christ, not only just from Christ himself, but again, we talked about how Christ has given gifts of encouragement to the church, the people of God, born-again believers. When they encourage you, the source of their gift of encouragement is Jesus. You see, so really that fits into the fact that there is encouragement in Christ. Other believers are in Christ, therefore they can encourage us. That encouragement comes from Christ. There is encouragement in Christ. After all, what did, what did Jesus say he could send us? Another comforter. Well, that comforter is also an encourager. And do all believers have the encourager and dwell within them? Surely they do. Therefore, we conclude that there is encouragement in Christ. And what Paul's saying is, since there is encouragement in Christ, there ought to be unity. That's not all he says in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, since there is encouragement in Christ, and also he says, since there is any consolation of love. Since there is there consolation of love? You see, it's the love of God uh, because it's the love of God that saved us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Jesus said it shed his blood on the cross for us, that we would never perish, right? Despite our sin, right? As Pastor mentioned this morning, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is there any consolation? Is there any comfort of love? Paul's not questioning. He said, guys, I'm not sure if, if, if God's love can comfort you. That's not what he's saying. You see, he's saying since there is encouragement in Christ and since there is comfort of the love of God, number one, the love that saved us. Does that not bring you comfort, the fact that God has chosen to redeem us? Filthy sinners, undeserving of his grace. That love is comforting, isn't it? It's also this love that not only saves us, but it's this love that keeps us. As Pastor Larry mentioned this morning in Sunday school, uh, Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and not one will be lost. And then we say the benediction, and I want him who is able to keep us from falling. Is there comfort in that love? <laughs> the love of God that saved us despite our sinfulness, 
Is there comfort in that love that despite our sinfulness after salvation, uh, it's still the grace of God and his love that keeps us? There's comfort there. Paul's not questioning whether or not it's there. It's there. And since it's there, there should be unity. Not only the encouragement in Christ, but the, but the comfort of the love of God. But that's not all. It says also in verse 1, if, since there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is any consolation of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit. Is there fellowship of the Spirit? Paul's not question, questioning whether or not there's fellowship uh, when you have the Spirit of God in you. There is fellowship. And since there is fellowship, number one, because the Spirit is the one who placed us into fellowship with God. Uh, Romans 8, 12 through 17 talks about how he placed us into the family of God where now we have the Spirit and now we can cry, Abba, Father, where we've been adopted by God and placed into fellowship where before we were still yet in our sins and there was no fellowship with God. But now, as a result of the fellowship of the Spirit, the Spirit placed us into fellowship with God, but that's not all. The fellowship of the Spirit is not just that we have fellowship with God, but we also have fellowship with one another. Because why? Because now we've been placed by the Spirit into the family of God. Therefore, there's only one body. One body, many members. So is, should there be unity as a result of fellowship of the Spirit? Yes. Since there's fellowship of the Spirit, there should be unity. Since there's encouragement in Christ, there should be unity. Since there is comfort of the love of God, there should be unity. Since there is fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, I heard this illustrated one time about uh, how the nation was, was shocked about a picture in the, in the front cover of the news of a little boy sitting in the president's chair in the Oval Office. Everybody was shocked. They, you know, that's the picture. That's how they sold a lot of papers. A little kid sitting in a chair there. And then everybody would read the article as to see what's with this little kid sitting in the president's chair. How can he be seated in such a high place? And then they got to reading the article and it talked about how he was uh, President Kennedy's son, you see. So he had the right and the ability to sit in that high place. And that is just like us. When we've, we've been adopted into the family of God, we now have the ability to sit in such a high place in fellowship with God and our brothers and sisters. God places us in fellowship, but God never takes us out. We take ourselves out of fellowship with God and with our brother by sin. God places us into fellowship, but he never takes us out. We take ourselves out of fellowship. If we're not in fellowship with God right now, it's us that has the problem. And the problem is sin. And it needs to be dealt with. If we're not in fellowship with another brother or sister in the Lord right now, it's us that remove that fellowship. There's sin there that needs to be dealt with. But notice with me that not only since there is encouragement in Christ and consolation of love and fellowship of the Spirit, but also, Paul says, if there is any affection and compassion in verse 1. And he's, again, he's not questioning whether or not there's affection and compassion. 
there definitely is, and he knows this. So really what he's saying is, since there is affection and compassion, there should be unity. Uh, turn with me in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. The next book after Philippians, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. And we're going to see here in verse 12 that there is affection and compassion as recipients of God's affection and compassion. Colossians 3.12 says this, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. As chosen of God. This is teaching us that as recipients of God's affection and compassion, we also should have affection and compassion. Do we have it? Do we, do we, as recipients, as chosen of God, we are recipients of the affection and compassion that God had for us, knowing where we were headed. And he, and he shed that affection and compassion upon us through his son. So we see that there is, since there is affection and compassion, number one, as recipients of God's affection and compassion in our hearts and lives, there is affection and compassion. But not only that, but in Colossians uh, 3.13, this is a result of bearing with one another. That's how we have affection and compassion. That's how we apply it to our lives. Colossians 3, verse 13 says, uh, starting in verse 12, And so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, and then verse 13 it says, bearing with one another. Uh, this is how we apply this, since there is. Do we have the ability? Should not we have affection and compassion as, as being chosen of God, realizing that we don't deserve it, and uh, we should now be, have affection and compassion for our brothers, especially those who are the household of faith, right? And, uh, and have a compassion for the lost, right? So since there is, we ought to bear with one another. Remember I talked about the disunity in the church in Philippi? And Paul really is dealing with the issue of how to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And he says, guys, there must be unity. And he says there must be unity, and there should be unity, since there is encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and compassion. We should bear with one another. You know, it's funny, I thought about how the Bible's full of the fact that us as brethren should be greeting another, one another with a holy kiss. That's an intimate relationship. In fact, uh, most of us probably know uh, one another better than our blood relatives. This is an intimate, close relationship that we have, being adopted as sons and, and grafted into the family of God. <laughs> but you know as well as I do, if you've been brought up with a family of eight children, like I have, uh, you know that the closer you get, uh, the more harder it is to maintain unity, you see. Uh, so what I'm saying is we will be overly consumed with the speck in each other's eye. And we will forget that there's a plank in our own. So therefore, what, what Paul's saying is, since there, should, there is affection and compassion, and every, in the life of every believer, they should have affection and compassion for one another. Therefore, they should bear with one another. Now, I'm not saying overlook sin, deal with it. But what I'm saying, saying is bear with it. Don't get to the point where you're fed up. Hey, I'm, I'm just not going to talk with that brother or sister anymore. I'm not going to deal with them and all this. You know, we have to bear with one another, don't we? But that's not all. It says also in Colossians 3.13, it says, Bear with one another 
and forgive each other. Uh, since there is affection and compassion, there should be unity. Sometimes there's not unity because the brethren are not bearing with one another. And sometimes there's not unity because brothers and sisters don't forgive each other. Even if the brother comes to them and says, hey, I'm sorry, they still don't forgive. But the practical application of unity, because there's fellowship of the Spirit and because there is affection and compassion and should be in the life of every believer, uh, we need to forgive each other. Somebody comes to you, says sorry, no matter what they've done to you. You have to forgive. What did, the disciple, what did Jesus say to the disciple? They come to me seven times. They keep doing this. Well, you keep forgiving them if they come to you. Right? But then in uh, Colossians 3.13, Paul deals with something else. He says, uh, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, uh, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive your brother. So we see there should be, there, since there is affection and compassion, uh, as recipients of God's affection and compassion... We should bear with one another. Or we should forgive one another just as Christ forgave us. We should have the same love, the same love that God has for us. We should have for one another. It's not, oh, what is the sum of the law? You should love the God. Love God with a greater love and then love your neighbor with a lesser love. No, it's the same love. And that love involves bearing with one another just as Christ bears with us even still, doesn't he? And just as Christ forgave us and still forgives us, you see. So there should be unity because of that, because of affection and compassion in the life of a believer. Also, in verse 2, we see, of Philippians chapter 2, in verse 2 we see that there should be unity because joy cannot be complete without unity. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this to the church in Philippi with a lot of problems there, and he's trying to tell them to strive together for the faith of the gospel in unity. And he says in verse 2, make my joy complete, guys, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and ten on one purpose. He says, guys, make my joy complete. Well, guess what? If a, if a church is not in unity, there cannot be completed joy. Paul says, hey, you know, I have a little joy. Yeah, you guys, you know, you had to change life and, you know, God's working there and, you know, uh, people are being added to the church daily and all this kind of thing. But guess what, guys? My joy will never be complete until there's unity there in that church. Uh, so another reason for unity is for completed joy. And notice with me in verse 2, Paul says, uh, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. If they're not of the same mind, remember, remember what we talked about in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, how Paul said that Judea and Syntyche, they weren't living in harmony in the Lord. <laughs> they weren't of the same mind, you see. So Paul says, guys, make my joy complete by being in unity. Deal with that. You know, come together, work it out, bear with one another, forgive one another, live in harmony in the Lord. And then it also says in verse 2, uh, make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining the same love. Uh, the antinomians had a different kind of love, you know, <laughs> than true believers. You know, they loved the things of the earth, Paul said in chapter 3 of Philippians. Their God was their bellies. They had a different love uh, than, than the true believer, you see. So there wasn't unity there. That had to be dealt with. In order for Paul's joy to be complete, 
uh, they had to be of the same mind and the same love. You know, a, a love that actively seeks the highest value at your own expense. Not, hey, I love God, I love you, what do you got to eat? You know, worry about the things of the earth, you know. So uh, when you see that, that joy cannot be complete if the church is not of the same mind, if not of the same love, and then also it says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. They don't have the same spirit. Look at the Judaizers. Did they have the same spirit? No, they didn't. Beware of the dogs, Paul calls them. They're of a different spirit. You know, they, they put their confidence in the flesh. That's a different spirit than the spirit of God. The spirit of God does not cause us to put confidence in the flesh, amen? There was a different spirit there. They weren't united in spirit. And Paul's joy is never going to be complete, and there's never going to be unity unless they deal with it. And also the perfectionist, also. If the church does not have the same purpose... Paul deals with that in verse 2. He says, intent on one purpose. What's your purpose? You know, have you obtained it already? You're perfect already? <laughs> or should you press on and run to win the prize, you see? So Paul talks about unity there. And if we're going to strive together, any New Testament church, in order for there to be unity, they need to strive together for the faith of the gospel uh, since there is fellowship of the love of uh, uh, encouragement in Christ, affection and compassion, and there should be completed joy by being of the same mind, by maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. But also, uh, notice with me that Paul did not only deal with the issue of unity, he also dealt with the issue of humility. Uh, let's, let us look now at verse 3 through 11. He dealt with the issue of humility. In verse 3 he says, Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. Selfishness is, is prideful. That, that's arrogant. That's not, that's not humble. That's not humility. So that's what Paul's dealing with now. He already dealt with the unity. Now he's dealing with the humility. If they're going to strive together for the faith of the gospel, they just, they just can't be unity. Or actually, there can't even be unity unless there's humility. Amen? So we see number one in verse three, according to verse three, uh, uh, we need to be humble to prevent strife. Paul said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, or, 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 or don't be, do nothing out of uh, contentiousness to cause uh, 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 disunity and uh, strife in the church. Therefore, we need to be humble to prevent strife. Also, to remind us of our own depravity. Remember from whence you have come by being humble. You know, pride comes before the fall, right? Uh, the Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, right? Humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So we see that, that uh, humbleness, humility, reminds us of our depravity, according to verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Uh, where does it take place, the battle? In the mind. What does Paul say in, in uh, Romans 12? By renewing your minds. You see, and that's not just, hey, once at salvation, you deal with it, and then it's over. It's daily. I die daily to myself, right? So daily, this process, this battle in our minds uh, should be going on in the sense of humility, realizing who we are before God to remind us of our depravity, that we're totally depraved of any ability in and of ourselves to please God uh, in any way. But then also he talks about uh, you being, being humility, being humble, 
to be open for growth in verse 4. Paul says, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3, he says, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. He's talking about humbleness. Uh, it, this, is, this is in order to be open for growth. If you're more important than everybody else, guess what? You've learned it all. You're closed. You're not going to grow at all. You know, if you come to the point where you've attained it and, you know, hey, you know, I know it all now. You know, you're not going to read a book. You're not going to read the Bible. You're not going to pray. You've obtained it already. You're perfect. You know, uh, you've closed the door for growth in your life. That's what happened by being prideful. So Paul says, be, be humble. And he says here uh, in verse 3 at the end, let each one of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't look at the things that you excel in. Look in, look in the areas of the lives of others and the, and the areas in which they excel and see what you can take from them to grow in your Christian life before God and fellow men. So you have to be humble to prevent strife, to remind us of our depravity, to be open for growth in the Christian life, and also in verse 4, to be able to minister to others. You need to be humble. You have to have humility. It says in verse 4, Paul says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. I, I don't have to preach on the Good Samaritan. We all know that story. But who was it that walked by? Who was it, was it that, that missed the opportunity to minister to a soul in need? The prideful, the ones who, they had it all. They were above being humble and ministering to a soul in need. Therefore, you see how Paul deals with it? You need, we need to be humble. We need to have not only unity, but humility to be able to minister to others. And then also, we need to be humble. There needs to be humility as we strive together for the faith of the gospel in order to be like Jesus. In verse 5, Paul says, have this attitude, this, this humility, attitude of humility, uh, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say, who although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself and took on the form of a man and came down here to, uh, to, to live a life as a man, although he was, uh, should be, uh, deserve all the glory in the world as the Lord of Lord and Kings and King of Kings. He humbled himself to come down and live as a man. And he was obedient to the death, right? But so we see here that Paul's talking about not only unity, but humility to prevent strife, to remind us of our depravity. That's why we should be humble, to be open for growth, to be able to minister to others and to be like Jesus. And also in verse 9 through 11, it talks about being uh, humble to be rewarded. Verse 9 through 11 says this, Therefore also God highly exalted him, Jesus, who humbled himself and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> uh, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, there's going to be a reward for humility. Again, what does the Bible say? He resisted the proud, God does, but he gives grace to the humble. That's a reward, grace, isn't it? I mean, not that we work for it, but you have to be humble in order to be exalted. <laughs> also, uh, at the judgment day, 
you know, uh, are we going to be prideful and arrogant in our Christian walk? There's a great judgment day. You know, we're going to stand before Christ and say, look what I did down there, you know. <laughs> no, there's a judgment day, and also at the present. You know, if you notice a lot of prideful people that aren't humble, there's really not a lot of peace there, you see. Uh, so we have a present reward also, peace of the Holy Spirit. And also, notice with me, though, a very important key here in verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And humble is for the glory of God. Not, hey, I'm real humble. I'm, hey, you're real nice. You know, I want to lift you up and put you on a pedestal now because you're so humble. No, it's to the glory of God. Look what, God, look what Christ and God can do in us as we, we were humble before a man, right? But notice with me as we close here in purity. Paul says we've got to strive together for the faith of the gospel in unity, in humility, and also in purity. Verses 12 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, so then, in verse 12. So then. What he's saying here is since we have a perfect example in Christ, he exalted himself, uh, or humbled himself, was exalted. Since we have that perfect example in Christ, uh, we should be like Jesus. So then. So then. Because Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because he humbled himself and served and sat and ate with sinners, we have a perfect example in him. We should humble ourselves also. We've got we to be like Jesus, don't we? And then also, uh, if we're going to be pure, uh, he, Christ was obedient unto death. We need to be obedient. And then verse 12 deals with this. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, talking about obedience, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Talk about living a pure life, a life of obeying God and his holy word. And this is how salvation has worked out. It's already been dealt with as, as far as when Christ shed his blood, right? He came to save his people, and he did, didn't he? But you know what? Uh, the way we tell whether or not we're truly saved, as Pastor Larry dealt with this morning in Sunday school, only those who hold fast to the end. And uh, those who hold fast to the end will work out their salvation with fear and trembling by being pure, by obeying God and his holy word. And then we see also in verse 13 that when he should be pure since it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Since God is in us, doesn't that, doesn't that exhort you to be pure? Don't you have more desire to be pure, knowing that the Spirit of God is in us, and it's all God's work? Uh, how about a vessel? You know, the Bible says that we're vessels. Uh, don't you want to be a fit vessel for the Master's use? Well, we need to be pure, don't we? And so we see here that Paul is dealing with the issue of purity. Since we have a perfect example, since purity involves obedience from salvation, since God is at work in us, and notice with me in verse 13 it says, by his will, by the way. Verse 13 says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will, whose will? By his will, and to work for his good pleasure. So we should be pure because that's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And it's for his pleasure. What pleasure can he have in an unpure vessel, right? So we see here uh, that we should be pure since we have a perfect example, since purity involves obedience, since God is at work in us. And then also verse 15, since it is proof 
verse 15 says this. Paul says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, you see, purity is proof. Amen? Purity is proof, number one, that you're blameless. Are you pure today? I had one, one fellow, he was deacon material at a church I pastored at, and he, he, he said, I can't be a deacon because I'm not blameless. The Bible says you have to be blameless. I said, well, if you're not blameless, uh, you know, what sin do you have in your life right now that you have not dealt with? And please deal with it right now. And if you're not, tell me why you're not going to deal with it. You know. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, to be blameless, you, you don't have to be perfect because no one would qualify to be a deacon. To be blameless means all your sins have been dealt with before God and your fellow brother. So deal with them. I said, have you dealt with them? He said, yeah. I said, well, then you're deacon material. Then you're ready. You're blameless then. So, but you see, this is proof that we've been blameless by our pure, obedient life to God and the Holy Scriptures. Uh, if we're not pure, then there's blame in our lives, you see. If all of our sins have not been dealt with before God and our fellow man, we're not pure. Uh, so purity is a proof of being blameless in Christ before God and our fellow man. But also, according to verse 15, there's, there's proof of something else here. It says in verse 15 that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. <laughs> Are you a child of God? Well, then you'll be pure, you see. You'll, you'll obey. You'll hold fast to the end, amen? You'll persevere, you see. So purity is proof of a true Christian. So it not only proves that you're blameless, but it proves that you're a child of God, a child of the king. But also, look, notice with me also in verse 15, there's more proof in living a pure life. In verse 15, it says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you whom you appear as lights. There's further proof to the world that God has done a work of grace in your life if you're pure. And Paul says, if you're going to strive together for the faith of the gospel, you need to be pure. And you need to, and that will be evident amongst the world, you see. Not just those within the church, but to those without. So we see here Paul is dealing with the issue of purity. And he says, guys, you should be pure as you strive together for the faith of the gospel. There's problems in that church. You should be pure. Since you have a perfect example in Christ, since purity involves obedience from salvation, if you're really saved, you should be pure. Since it's God at work in you, you've got the Spirit of God in you, you should be pure. What, what fellowship does Christ have with the sin? None. Since it is proof that you're blameless, that all your sins have been dealt with before your fellow man and God, that you're children of God as proof to the world, and also you should be pure by holding fast the faithful word. There's no other way. Verse 16, Paul says, holding fast the word of life. And the word of life is the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you're not pure if you're not holding fast the word of life. Amen? God's holy word, the Bible, his guideline for life, his uh, absolute for living, for faith, doctrine, practice, morality. So this happens by holding fast the faith of the word of life. 
you're holding it fast, you're going to be pure. Uh, there was a story once about a, a man in an airplane, actually three of them, and they fell out. And uh, they didn't have parachutes. I don't know what happened. It's just an illustration, so hang in there. They're okay. <laughs> but uh, two of them, as, as the story goes, I won't upset you here. As the story goes, uh, two, the two guys that fell out, three guys fell out, and uh, by the time they got down, land, the plane landed, they found two of the bodies. They couldn't find the other one. And then as the pilots got down and the rescue team came over, they noticed there was one man hanging on to the plane. You see, and that's an illustration of holding fast, you see. And uh, see, that's what we have to do. Uh, Paul says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. That's, that's the kind of grip we need to have on the word of God, amen? Amen. We need to hold fast the word of life. But let me just share three ways how we can hold fast the word of life, right? We want to strive together for the faith of the gospel, don't we? But how are we going to do that? Uh, well, there's three ways. Number one, by meditation on the word of God. The Bible says in Joshua 1, 8, 9, This book of the law shall not meditate, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate on it day and night. Day and night. Meditation of the word of God. That's one way that we get that firm grip on the word of life, that we hold fast to it. Also, there's another way. The second way of holding fast to the word of life is by memorization. Uh, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. We're talking about purity here. It happens by holding fast the word of life, by meditating on the word, and by memorizing the word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against you. Also, the third way to hold fast the faithful word, nice tight grip on the word of God, is not just meditation and memorization, but it's also by studying. Uh, we should study to show ourselves approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? Uh, in order to be pure. If, you, if, if, if you're not going to be ashamed if, you, if you've got a good grip on the word of God, amen? And if you're living a pure life. Because that purity will only come as a result of holding fast to the faithful word, to the word of life, the Bible, God's guideline for life of every believer. Uh, by holding fast the word of life is a way that we can become pure. Meditation, memorization, and study. Paul deals with the problems in this church. As I mentioned before, uh, I want to tell you that... Uh, uh, I started this, this health and fitness center in the incorporated village, a nice quaint village, and I knew there's other gyms around, and there's choices that people had to make, and it was a high income area, and my prices, by the way, were probably triple, if not quadruple, the price of another gym or fitness center. Uh, but you see, uh, the clientele that I was trying to attract, what they wanted was a pleasant, conservative atmosphere, and that's why it was very important for me to start and maintain that pleasant, conservative atmosphere. And I knew there needed to be unity amongst me and the instructors with that, with, with, the, with the goal and how to attain it. You know, if there was differences, there wasn't going to be unity. If somebody come in and says, hey, I know how to present a good atmosphere, you take off your shirt and you crank on Led Zeppelin and kill your mother music and all this kind of stuff, you know. There's not going to be any unity, you see. You see, so there needs to be unity. And there needs to be humility. 
If I had guys coming in there, uh, walking around with big muscles like Schwarzenegger, uh, these, these little old ladies, they're not going to work out. You know, they're going to be intimidated, really. They're going to be intimidated. There needs to be humility, a humbleness. And there needs to be purity. If my instructor's not practicing what I'm trying to teach these people, to go slow, safe, if they're going there throwing the weights around and, you know, making a mess of the place, and uh, it's not going to work out. So you see, we had to strive together uh, to maintain uh, that atmosphere. And also, it's interesting how, again, God is the owner of the church. And you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And you know how God has, has told us through Paul, by his spirit, to the problem church in Philippi. And it applies to us in every New Testament church. God says the only way to strive together for the faith of the gospel is to be in unity and to be humble, to do it in humility and also to do it in purity. Are we practicing what we're preaching? Are we living holy lives before God and our fellow man? Are we humble? Are we going to, uh, you know, miss that opportunity to minister to somebody because we're prideful and just pass that good Samaritan? And are we in unity because of what we have in Christ? Or are we not bearing with one another and not forgiving one another? And this is the way that, that God has commanded us to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Paul, that's exactly what Paul told the church in Philippi, and that's what we need to do. We need to strive together for the faith of the gospel by unity, humility, and purity. Let us pray. Dear Father, today we thank you. We do thank you, Lord, for calling us out of the darkness of sin and the stain thereof and into the marvelous light of your glorious gospel to the ministry of your word. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, but yet a high responsibility that we have as believers being called and commanded by you to strive together for the faith that saved us and keeps us and the faith that we have to offer to a soul in need. We realize, Lord, that we can only do this in unity, humility, and purity. Otherwise, there's not going to be completed joy. Give us the grace to deal with areas in our lives that need to be worked on. And then, Father, may you be glorified as a result of us continuing to maintain a pleasant atmosphere in your church, to operating it under your instructions. Give us the grace and receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.